Well, you may have noticed if you were here last week, I wasn't here. Dr. Jenny Anderson did a great job filling in. We were camping, us men. We were camping. Um, an interesting camping trip, to say the least. I'm not a camper. I haven't been camping probably in 20 years or more. And, uh, and even then, it was very controlled camping. But uh, we went up, and Friday afternoon, three of us got there. It was sunny and warm, and it was good. We had this, this big stone table that sat right in the middle of our campground. And we kind of started piling our stuff on it. And uh, everyone else came. We set up the tents, all the stuff you do when you're camping. And, and just like everyone does when they're camping, they set up the computer so we could watch the Padres game. <laughs> And there we are, yep, there we are. We set up, set up the computer, we watched the Padres beat the Dodgers and uh, celebrated with the rest of the campground. So that was good. It was a good first night. And, and Bill Flake, that guy is the best housewife ever. I mean, he can, make, he can make meals. I mean, and they were just hot dogs with canned chili. It's all it was, but it tastes really good when you're camping, just so you know. But the next day comes, there was early in the week, slight chance of rain, like 20%, 30%. And by the time the next morning came, it was a much higher percentage, but it wasn't going to happen until 3. Well, about noon, as we're on our second hike, it decided to rain, and not just rain, but hail. And so it was like coming down, rocks are wet, the, the path is all muddy. By the time we get back to camp, our campsite was pure mud. I mean, it looked like a river running through it. And I think I was the only one that was like, shouldn't we go home? But I guess you don't do that when you're camping. You stay, you tough it out. And so we did. And we put our little 10 by 10 pop-up, and I think you can see it there over our stone table that didn't seem very significant at the start of the camping trip, but became very significant because we hid under that 10 by 10 pop-up because the rain didn't stop until the next morning. It just rained and rained and rained. And Bill had this little this little propane fire ring that we put on the table. We don't... we weren't, well, it probably wasn't safe, but we did it anyway because it was warm. And poor Judah had, had blue toes. I mean, they were so cold. He was cooking his socks, trying to get them warm. Anyway, that table, we were packed under that table, and it was, it was an amazing evening in the rain. You can't say we were having a blast camping, but we started to bond. It's hard not to. In the rain, sitting around that, that campfire cooking hamburgers, I think we ate about 10 each, I think. We were pretty hungry, and so we're sitting there, and then, then it turned to a time where we prayed for each other other under that tent, and I'll just let you know there were tears shed. I don't, won't tell you by who, because you know I don't cry, but there's, there's a chance. But there were tears shed. There was this, this bonding, and there's something about that table. You see, in our culture, the table's not very important anymore. But, but there in that campsite, that's where everything happened around that table. And in our home, if you're like us, we, we don't eat at the table very often, especially as our kids have gotten older. Uh, but if you go back to the ancient Middle East, the table was so significant. I mean, the table was where things happened, kind of like our, our campsite. In fact, in the Middle East, it, if you were wealthy in the Middle East, you showed it much differently than we do. We, we go out and we buy fancy cars and we get big homes that actually have big fences so no one can get in our house, right? And we buy fancy things. But in the Middle East, if you were wealthy, you invited people to your home for a meal. You invited people to your table. And what you would do is you would get so much food that there's no way everyone could eat it all. 
And that's how you showed your wealth, is you invited people to the table. It was a significant thing in that culture, and not just for the wealthy, actually for everybody. So if you were just a common person, and there's a traveler going by your house, what you would do is you go out and you would invite them in. You didn't know who they were. You didn't know their social status. All you did, you would invite them in to the table. You would invite them in for a meal. And, and a lot of times, those travelers, it was a, a difference between life and death if someone gave them something to eat. And, and so when they invited them in, in that Middle Eastern culture, when that guest came in, they could be the, as poor as poor could be, but you invited them in and you'd wash their feet. You'd anoint their head with oil. You'd give them a special place at your table and you would feed them. You invited them to your table. And that table was so significant, it literally represented life. <laughs> and, and so that's the culture that, that Jesus was in. That's a culture that David was in, the table. The invitation to the table. It, it was, well, it was held in the highest regard. Now, we've been talking about David, and, and very quickly, just to let you know where we're at. If you remember, David was on the run, but now he's become king. And he defeated the Philistines, their arch enemy. And then uh, two weeks ago, they brought the ark. David brought the ark back to Jerusalem. So the presence of God is now with Israel again. And there's this celebration. Things are going really well. And, and in the midst of things going really well, David wants to find any of Saul or his friend Jonathan's descendants. And, and so... Before we get into that, I want to introduce you to someone. The first time we meet Mephibosheth is in 2 Samuel chapter 4. He's mentioned very few times in the Bible. He's not a significant character. Just right now, you could name lots of people you know named David, right? Name one named Mephibosheth. There isn't, right? You don't know anyone because he's not a significant character. He doesn't have this, this big role. But the first time we meet this non-popular figure, this is what it says. 2 Samuel 4.4, 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That's the news that they died. <clears throat> His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave... He fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So every time Mephibosheth is mentioned, he's mentioned with Mephibosheth. He was lame in both feet. Uh, it's not the greatest way to be introduced. I, I think my brother Rob, who I've talked about before, he'd always introduce me to his friends. I'd say, hey, this is my little brother Chris. He's lame. It was just kind of like that. And so I'm kind of used to Mephibosheth, but every time the guy's mentioned, he's mentioned as, and he's lame in both feet, or he's crippled in both feet. And so think about Mephibosheth's life. Five years old, he finds out his dad died, his grandfather died. And in that, the whole, his whole life just imploded. I mean, he went from being the prince, living in the palace, to on the run, his nurse drops him, breaks both legs, which there's no way to get him fixed back then. She just has to get out of there. She's got to go someplace, and so they are on the run. And now he's poor. He's dependent on other people to take care of him. It, this isn't the life he had expected, right? <laughs> life was way different. He's lame. He has no rights. He has no chance. He has no ability to make a living, and he's just stuck in that life. Plus, when his nurse took them, they ran to Lodabar. 
Lodabar is not a place you want to live. Like I said in the first service, I'm not going to compare it to Bakersfield. It's different than that. But it's not a great place. Okay, so Lodabar, the, the word debar literally means thing or sheep pasture. And so, but which is good. So if you have something in town, right, or if you have a sheep pasture in town, it means it's a good place. But the word low means no. So there's no thing. There's no pasture. In other words, Lodabar has no significance. If you don't have green grass there for sheep, why live there? If you don't have something there, why live there? Well, that's the question, right? The only people that lived in Lodabar were the outcasts, the rejected, the sick. They went there because no one else wanted them. And that is where Mephibosheth is. He's in Lodabar. Now, I've been there. I'm sure you've been in Lodabar before, maybe not physically, but mentally. There's times in life that we feel like we're in Lodabar, right? It's, it's depressing. It's sad. We, we have nothing there. There's no significance. And, and so here we have Mephibosheth, lame in both feet, living in Lodabar. David, things are going really well. And so while things are going well, he begins to remember his best buddy, Jonathan, who is Saul's son. And you remember David were enemies, and Saul hated David, but him and Jonathan had this friendship, and they made this covenant together. They were going to take care of each other's families, even after they were gone. And so David remembered that. And in 2 Samuel 9, this is what it says. One day David asked, if anyone in Saul's family, if, is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And so one of Saul's servants, his name is Ziba, he, David calls him and says, hey, I want you to find any of Jonathan's kids, some of his family. Is there anyone still alive at this point? Because they would be hiding. Just so you know, a new king comes in, you don't want to be the old king's family. Because typically, kings would then wipe out the other family, so no one has a right to the throne. And, and so in this situation, David's being very different than any other king at the time. So he, he sends his servant out, go find one of Jonathan's friends. And so in 2 Samuel 9, 3, it says, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet, just like my brother introduced me, right? Every time I found one, he's lame. It's Chris again. So, so here we find Mephibosheth. Again, he is, he's in Lodabar. And so they find him. And so basically what the servant is saying here is, hey, I found one of the sons of Jonathan. But I know you want to show kindness. I know, you know, you're thinking it's going to be nice. But I'm just saying you probably don't want to bring him here. First of all, he lives in Lodabar, which is unclean, not a good place. And he's crippled. He's not going to help you at all. Uh, nothing good's going to come from this, David. And, and if you're Mephibosheth, and, and this servant shows up, and he says, hey, I'm with David now, and I'm here to find you. <laughs> Mephibosheth would be scared to death, right? It, oh, the only thing worse than living in Lodabar is dying, right? And so he doesn't want to die. He's hiding in Lodabar. And so in uh, 2 Samuel 9, 6, it says, when he came to David, or I'm sorry, Mephibosheth then is, is being brought to David. I got ahead of myself there. He's being brought to David. And I'm just guessing, and it doesn't necessarily say this except for what Mephibosheth said, he's probably really scared for his life. And his hope is that David would be kind to him, but worst case scenario, David's going to kill him. 
because that's what kings did back then. So, so Mephibosheth gets loaded up. I don't know if he had to walk. I don't even know if he could walk. I don't, I don't know what his crippled situation was, but, but he makes his way to Jerusalem, makes his way to the palace, and you can imagine the fear of going right before the king. David's here on his throne, and here's Mephibosheth walking up to him or, or dragging or someone's carrying him up there, and you can imagine the fear. And it says, when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect, and David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. He was surrendering, say, I'll do whatever you want. Because his only right really is, is death at this point. And he's hoping David might go easy on him. But in verses 7 and 8, David said, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the prosperity that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. And Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Mephibosheth's response there shows his place in this. He's, he's not someone that can help the king. He can't do anything. He can't fight. He can't produce a living. He's not just a dog. He's a dead dog. He said, I'm worth nothing. Why would the king do this for me? And, and I want you to understand, this guy went from Lodabar. He comes back to Jerusalem, and David gives him all the land that his grandfather had. His grandfather was the king. I mean, so he just won the lottery plus some. I mean, this is like good news, right? But that's not even the best news of this whole story. He's given the land, which is basically you're being given all this money. But David said, and you will eat at my table with me. And you understand Mephibosheth was like an outcast. He was a cripple. He, he, he didn't belong at the king's table. Yet David said, no, you are my honored guest. You are welcome at my table, period. There was nothing else expected of Mephibosheth except to come and eat. <laughs> and it says in, in 2 Samuel 9, 11, 13, it says, From that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, like one of the king's own sons. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, there it is again, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. This guy went from Lodabar, dry, dirty, depressed, to the king's table. He was invited to the king's table. And when we understand the significance of David's time, what that table meant, he was an honored guest. He was eating just like one of his own sons. What a thing. You go from being afraid and alone and lame and not good enough to being invited and sitting at the king's table. You fast forward to Jesus' time, and he, he tells a story to a group of religious leaders that is so similar to this. And I find it quite interesting, but it begins, and it's in Luke chapter 14, it begins with Jesus being invited to a, a table or a meal with a bunch of really important religious leaders, Pharisees. And, and so they're the head of the church. These are really important guys, and they invite Jesus probably to... to 
find something wrong with him more than anything else, but they invite him. And it's interesting, they, they, Jesus shows up to this little party of all these important people, and there's a sick guy there. And he had come up to Jesus and was like, man, I'm not feeling good. I, I need some help. And Jesus looks around at all the Pharisees. No one's going to help him. So Jesus heals the guy. The only problem is it was Sunday. And that's against one of their rules, you know. And so they're all looking down at Jesus. They're already, they already don't like him. And now here Jesus heals this guy. They're upset about that because it's the wrong day of the week to heal somebody, right? And, and so, so now here the party is a little awkward, a little uncomfortable. And Jesus is looking around, and he's realizing, which he probably already realized, that there is not one person there that does not benefit the owner of the house. He, he didn't invite the neighborhood. He invited the politically powerful. He invited the heads of the church. He invited people that would help him get ahead. That's what he did. And so Jesus makes this comment, which probably wasn't well taken, but he says, then he turned to the host. When you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they'll invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Now, this is not a popular comment. I just want you to grasp a hold of this. In that day, those religious leaders, they held themselves in very high regard. And the people Jesus mentioned, the crippled, the lame, the blind, the poor, those people were viewed as sinners. They had that lot in life. Why? Well, because they sinned. That's how they viewed that. And so these people are down and out and outcast, and they are not welcome to this this table. And so Jesus says, why don't you invite those people that can't invite you back? Wouldn't that be better of you? Well, they're not going to take too kindly to that. And so hearing this, another man sitting at the table, this is more of a debate than it is a discussion at this point. Another man hearing this, a man at the table with Jesus exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. It's basically what this guy said to Jesus and everyone at the table is, won't it be nice for us, really important people, when we're in the kingdom of heaven, because we'll have the banquet. And you, Jesus, and all your blind, poor, and crippled people, they won't be there. It'll be so nice just to be us. It'll be so nice just to have all these important people. And, and so then Jesus goes from that, and he starts to tell them a story. And Jesus' story starts with a king. He says, here's a king. And the king wants to have a feast. And, and basically, they know this story. This is a popular story at the time. And so Jesus starts it off just like this very popular story they already know. That the king's going to have a feast. And this is basically talking about heaven, the kingdom of God. And he's going to have this feast. And he sends his servant out with invitations. Go invite these people. The servants run out and they start to invite all these important people to come to the king's feast. And they would look at the invitation and go, I got something going on that day. They, they weren't interested in the feast. They were too important to come to this feast. And so after a while, the, the servants come back and go, man, king, they, they won't come. And he goes, well, man, you know what? You need to go out, find the poor and the crippled and the, and the blind and, and all those outcasts and go give them, invite them in. And so they did. They went out and they found all the outcasts, all those on the margins, and bring them in. And 
The servants come back and they go, you know what? They came, but there's still room. And then the king says, hey, I want you to go out, go to the highest mountain, to the country road, just start inviting everybody you can. And they did that. And all these people came to the feast. So Jesus is telling this story to the people. I, I want to just read it to you straight from Luke chapter 14. It says, the servant returned and told his master what they had said. His master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and invite the poor the crippled, the blind, and the lame. After the servant had done this, he reported, there is still room for more. So the master said, go out to the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge everyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will even get the smallest taste of my banquet. You remember the story was told because one of these Pharisees said, won't it be a blessing when it's just us <laughs> at the feast in heaven? And Jesus just tells them, guess what? You might not even be there because the poor are going to be there and the crippled are going to be there. Those are the ones that God has invited. Oh, he's invited you too, but you seem to think you're too important. And, and so Jesus tells this story, and I just want to uh, keep saying there's this story that was circling at the time, the most popular story about the great feast that these Pharisees, these political leaders would have known was there is going to be this feast in heaven, and we're invited to the table. But their story was the people at the table are people from the Jewish faith. They're the important people. They're the priests. They're the religious leaders, and here they are. And guess who else gets invited? Well, the Gentiles, people outside the faith. And some poor, some crippled, all these, they get invited, but they never get to sit at the table because they get slaughtered. That's their story. All the important people sitting around the table eating, all, the, all these sinners and outcasts, are, they're dying while they're eating the meal. That's their view. And then Jesus comes and he tells them this story, that, oh yeah, you're not actually going to accept the invitation. These people are. You can imagine why they killed Jesus. That's not a popular thing to say. And, and, and in this, these people would have been furious at Jesus. But Jesus had this radical way about him, didn't he? And this radical offer of love and mercy, even to those that are outcasts. He was radical in his view of who belonged at the table. <laughs> you see, both of these stories, David and Mephibosheth, and Jesus in the great feast begin with the king. Begins with God himself. And God has this meal for us and says, come on. I want you to come. And in both stories, guess what? People were pursuing people to come to the table. <clears throat> David pursued Mephibosheth to invite him to the table. The servants in Jesus' story, they're out, they're out beating the hedges. They're running up and down the streets. They're announcing it everywhere. They're pursuing you and I, the outcast, <clears throat> even the religious, pursuing to come to the table. You are all invited to the feast. They're not invited to beg or serve at the feast. They're invited as honored guests, remember? An honored guest comes in and they have their feet washed. An honored guest comes in and they're anointed with oil and they sit as honored guests at the feast. <clears throat> when I was in college, I was, 
I'd probably have a very different picture of what I probably actually was like. But I was a religion major, and, and there was a certain guy on the, on the football team that he was very outspoken about being against Christianity, although he went to a Christian college. And he came because he was a really good football player. He was the best player on the team, and so we needed him. So, so we had this, this guy, but he was just against everything we stood for as a college. And me and him just butted heads all the time, and he just didn't like me, even though I was the sweetest guy ever. He just didn't like me. And, and so, so we always had, you know, just this little conflict going and, you know, we'd been playing together for a couple years, and, and one night, I'm talking 2.30 in the morning, I hear a knock on my dorm room door, and I go to the door, and it's, it's Tony, it's this guy, <laughs> and I'm like, Tony, what, what are you doing? And Tony's bawling, he's crying. I'm like, whoa, did someone die? What happened? And he said, no, I just need to talk to you. And so we went outside and just sat there in the hallway of a, of a dorm for I don't know, a couple hours, and he just spilled his life story to me. Uh, he was in this horrible place of depression. I mean, he was in Lodabar. And all this anger, all the stuff that came out of him was just because he didn't like himself. And here he is telling me all this, and I give him the, the first religion major answer I could come up with. Hey, come to church this weekend. And his response was, I can't go to church. Those people know me. They know I don't belong at church. I don't even want to walk in to church. So I said, we don't, you don't have to go to church. We can just pray right now. And we did. I look back at that, <laughs> that moment. I was able to invite this young man to the table. I gave him this invitation. He, he didn't belong at the table. For the longest time, he didn't want to be at the table. But in all reality, he really did. And when he took that invitation, man, did he take it. Changed his whole entire life. And every one of us, no matter where we are, whether we're in the lowest pits of Lodabar, in the deepest depression, the worst sinner, doesn't matter where you are or what you've done. You're invited here. You're invited to the table. Not to serve, but to be an honored guest. And I want to read you the words of David. When he wrote Psalm 23, I, I love the wording because it ties into both stories with Jesus and the great feast and with David and Mephibosheth and David says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, which is Lodabar, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love you prepare a table before me. Even in the presence of my enemies, you come from the darkest place to this table. And, you know, Ryan's going to come up and he's going to play. We're going to take communion here in just a second. But I was just thinking, when Jesus was at the Last Supper, he invited his disciples to a meal, invited them to the table, right? They had the invitation. And do you know Judas was invited to that? 
for some reason that like wow Jesus knew what was going to happen yet he's invited to the table right there here's our meal right in the presence of our enemies and it doesn't matter what you've done it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter where you're at you are invited to the table as an honored guest and so I'm going to pray for us and then I'm going to invite you to the table. You're going to come up and you're going to get the bread and the juice. And what I ask you to do is just go back and sit down and just hang on to those. We're going to take them all together. But let's just be in this worshipful place, remembering that you and I are invited by God himself to the table. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, my prayer right now is that you would meet us right where we are. We're all in different places and I ask that you would meet us at our deepest need. And Lord, as we participate in, in this meal, remind us of your love for us. Remind us of your grace. We just pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please come. Jesus sat at the table with his disciples. He broke the bread. He invited them to eat this. It was his body in remembrance of him who was eaten. And then he poured the wine and passed it around the table. Drink. Father, we thank you 
And we thank you for our invitation to the feast. We thank you that, that you died, that your body was broken, your blood was spilled, so that we could feast. Your grace and your mercy just spills out, and we praise you for that. Lord, as we leave here today, I pray that you would just remind us over and over that we have been invited, and we get to invite others to the feast. We just praise you and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. Thank you for being here.